Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master prayed the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the children of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a tough text. And we just believe that you have given it to us to make us more like you, Jesus. And so this morning and this preaching, Lord, would you accomplish that by your spirit? Uh, we love you so much, Lord. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. And I got to be honest with you, this passage is tough. I don't know if you picked that up just from the reading of the text but what in the world is Jesus saying here? I mean, he concludes at the end, make friends by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Is he saying, go befriend rich people or make money off of embezzling? He tells a story of a shrewd manager who is dishonest with his money, messes and squanders his money away. And Jesus is saying, be more like him. Jesus even says, that the sons or the children of this age are shrewder than the children of light. Are, are, are we as disciples of Jesus not as shrewd as the world? How, how, how are we supposed to move forward with this text? At the same time, I'm not surprised that parables are difficult. I mean, we had learned in Luke 8 that parables have the purpose of actually hiding things. He tells the parable of the sower that, that parables hide the mystery of God. And so we know that parables are tough and we have to come to them in faith. And yet at the same time, parables need to be dissected through a lot of historical context. A good analogy for parables, if this sticks with you, is uh, comedy. I think parables are a lot like comedy. I don't know if you've ever watched The British Office, okay? But it's not that funny, and it doesn't make sense that it's not that funny because the American office is hilarious. Same producer, same concept. But the problem is with the American office versus the British office is we know the context of America. And so even though it's the same language, we're, we're watching the show in the same language, we don't quite get the subtleties. And parables are like comedy because it's all about subtlety. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the whole point is the fact that Jews and Samaritans hate one another, and yet nothing in the parable expresses that fact. You just had to know when it said Samaritan that that's the reality. And so when we come to a text like this that's really confusing, we got to dig in to the subtleties. 
What are the economics of first century, of the first century world? How is business happening? We're going to dive into that. And I just want to admit that I'm not 100% sure about what this text means. It's debated amongst scholars, and I'm no scholar. <laughs> but I think as we read through it and carefully consider it, we can come out with a point that Jesus has specifically for us today because this passage is meant to speak to us about our money, right? We can't avoid the fact that Jesus is constantly talking about money. It is unavoidable that I could not have to preach on money, and I've had to do that a bunch of times, but Jesus is talking about money constantly, and he is so concerned with what we're doing with it. I want to kind of give, uh, in, introduce a scenario to start the parable to kind of give a context of what this parable can actually speak into and then we'll return to it at the end. A friend of mine just recently renewed her lease at her home. It's a small home, a great space for her. Uh, her landlord has been really gracious to her and given her a really cheap deal and she just renewed it. But a month after renewing it for a year, her landlord came to her and said, that they want to sell the space. Now this is problematic because she can't live, uh, it's tough to live in the area because of how expensive everything is. And he told her, look, if I sell it, which I will, I will do the best that I can to make sure that whoever owns the property next will honor your lease. Now she had some realtor friends, so she went and spoke with them. And the realtor friends like, actually, it's, it's, illegal for him to not honor the lease and whoever buys it has to honor the lease and in fact we have some lawyers who we're willing to help you out from our uh, realtor firm who can help you know take this guy to court or do whatever uh, you need to to make sure you stay in this place and yet she's caught in the middle of man here's what my friends are telling me yet at the same time i don't want to treat my landlord this way but if i don't do it then i will be taken a disadvantage of what does she do? Those situations come to us all the time. What do we do with our money in a position where we have a right to do something and doing something different would be to our disadvantage, yet Jesus is constantly calling us to generosity. How can we help those around us? And so this parable is going to address that. So with that, let's dive back in to verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager reported to him as squandering his possessions. All right, so we start this sermon or this message out with a change of pace, a change of audience. Jesus in Luke 15 was just talking about the prodigal son, and he was speaking to the Pharisees. And there's a common pattern with Jesus where he'll talk with the Pharisees and right after he's finished talking with the Pharisees, he'll speak to his disciples about what was just happening. And so we know then, we have, or at least we have a good idea that what is happening in this parable is going to be connected to the parable of the prodigal son, which we just heard about from Tim last week. And that's going to become really important later on. We'll come back to that. But also with that, he's speaking to his disciples, so we know that what Jesus is saying has everything to do with the way of Jesus, discipleship, how he wants us to live in this world. And so he begins with three characters. Two are obvious, one is subtle. There's a rich man, his manager, who we find out squanders, squanders his money, and a community. 
The community is the one who reports it to him, his friends, and he trusts them. And we have to track the relationship between these three and what are the assumptions and what are those subtleties to understand the rest of the parable. And so upon hearing this report, this rich man of the master, that his manager has squandered his possessions, he comes to him and asks him a question. What is this I hear about you? Verse 2. Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In contemporary terms, he calls the manager into his office and fires him on the spot. Right? He asks him this question, and the manager has no response. Right? He doesn't say, uh, no, I, I didn't squander the money. He doesn't vouch for his character. He doesn't provide any other explanation. His silence is admission to the guilt. And yet, and immediately then, he's fired on the spot. And this means something really important for the rest of the parable. That everything that now happens afterwards, that this manager does on behalf of the business, on behalf of his master, is illegitimate and illegal. Right? And that makes total sense. If you, were, uh, if you walked into your boss's office, you were fired, and then you walked out and then started telling your employees what to do, that's totally illegitimate. You can't do that. But even though that's the case, there's also another piece here in verse 2. He tells him to bring his books. He says, give an account of your management. See, the likely scenario here is that this rich man owns a lot of land, and he rents out parts of his land to people, and this man manages the different accounts. And so he has to go get those accounts and bring it back. And so moving forward then, though this man has no authority over the, the master's business, he has all the power because he still has the books. And so what is he going to do in this situation? So he leaves and he has to move quickly and think quickly. So the manager said to himself as he's leaving, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He knows his career as a manager is over, right? The word's going to get out on the street that he squandered the possessions, that he's unethical. There's no way he's going to get a job doing what he did. So he considers, well, maybe, maybe I can dig, right? I mean, construction's hard nowadays. But that's with power tools. Construction with just hand tools, that's tough work. He's not strong enough. He's not willing to beg either. He doesn't occupy uh, the social status that would allow that. He's not blind. He, he's not unable to walk. He doesn't have back issues. He's not a widow. He can't, he can't beg, and he's even ashamed to do it. And yet, it comes to him. I know what I shall do. There's an idiom in this. He says he knows what he will do so that people will welcome into, into their homes. What basically that means, that's an idiom in that time, that, that means he can go and be a manager of someone's estate. In other words, he has a plan that he's so certain of that will guarantee that he can do what he's doing right now somewhere else, even though reports are going to get out that he squandered the possessions of his master. So here's the plan, verses 5 through seven. He summons each one of his master's debtors and he begins saying to the first, how much do you owe your master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Notice how much haste is there. Sit down quickly. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 
80. So what's happening here? Well, there's a couple of options. It's clear that the master manager had a private meeting that no one else knows about. So it's possible, one explanation, is that he meets with the debtors and they have no idea that he is, is, has been fired. And so he dupes them, right? But by, he's not duping them in a negative way, right? He's actually cutting down their money in hopes that maybe when he gets fired and it becomes known and he lo fully loses his job, that they might have pity on him and take him back. That's one, impossible that's one possible interpretation. But I find it unlikely, all right? Here's why. I, I don't see how that guarantees his job. But like how would he know, having duped those people, that when they hear from the master his dishonesty, that they would even want him to work for them? But not only that, a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, a scholar on Middle Eastern context in the first century, points out something really astute of what's going on in relation to honor-shame culture. That in honor-shame culture, there's a difference between public appearance and private knowledge. That there's two planes that can be operated on that are legitimate. And what's most likely happening is that these debtors and this manager are in cahoots together, that they're embezzling the, mother, the money together. In other words, he has a private meeting with them, and he says, look, what I'm trying, I, I've been fired. Here's what we're going to do. We can cut down your money in half. I'll keep some of the money that you would have owed, and you keep the other. So they both make money, so he's secured for himself some sort of money in the future. But not only that, now he's privately known in these areas as being a crooked person, but who's really shrewd. He's really smart. But then on top of that, there's a difference between the public knowledge. Notice, Kenneth Bailey points out, that they quickly write down the name uh, with, with the debtor's handwriting, so it's legitimized in the public knowledge. And in fact, the money that is saved is absolutely massive. Even though it's 50% of oil and only 20% of wheat, it's about the same amount and equals about a year and a half's wages for a farmer. So when these debtors walk away from, from this meeting, they don't tell anybody it was illegitimate. What they report is the massive generosity of the master and how this great generous plan was done by the manager. So now the manager is famous throughout the community publicly and is privately known for his shrewdness. And the reason why this is so important is because this plan all hinges on the response of the master. You see, the master, upon knowing this, right, upon it becoming public knowledge of his great generosity, he has one option, which is to go back to these debtors and go to the community and say, you know what, I fired that guy. He had no authority to do this. It was illegitimate. And in fact, you have to pay me the full amount. And not only that, I'm going to throw this manager into prison. Even worse, he could sell him, into, him and his family into slavery. And that would all be legitimate for him to pay back the money that he squandered away. Or he could be silent and he could pay the salvation for this manager at his own disadvantage by his own generosity, he can pay the salvation for this manager. You see, the only way this plan works, the only way 
the manager knows the plan will work is because he trusts in the generosity of his master. You see, I noted before that there's going to be a connection between the story of the prodigal son and between this story. And in both of these stories, you have an underling, a son, and a manager each squander the possessions of the person above them, a father and a master. And upon squandering the money, they come into a dire position in which the only thing that can save them is the generosity of the one that they had squandered uh, the possessions of, the father and the master. And that's true in this text here, that the salvation, that, that the saving of this master, the way he gets out of this situation is the immense generosity and dare I say, the foolish generosity of the master because he had every right to take his money back, to demand the full debt, and to throw this man into prison. This reality, right, expanding and thinking about the community, the ignoble manager and the noble master expands what this whole parable could mean. But we've got to keep going because Jesus still applies this in, a, in an interesting way. There's still some tough things that Jesus says that we need to wrestle with. Verse 8, his master then, right after the manager returns with the books and this whole plan takes place, commends the unrighteous servant, unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus says, for the sons or the children of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the children of of the light. Or the master doesn't praise his unethical behavior, but he does basically say like, yeah, you're smart. That was smart. But Jesus just says, says, just says something so interesting. The people in the world are better with their own kind with money than the, than the disciples, than Christians. And the question is, how are we supposed to take that? You know, one of, someone who's been really influential to me is David Brooks. He wrote a book called Road to Character. He's a New York Times uh, writer, and he's a professor at Yale. And he came to Trinity and talked about being in these high-power spheres. And an attractive interpretation of this all that he kind of put forward is that Christians just seem to be not as well-equipped to operate in the world. And that re we really need to be better and wiser and more, more aggressive shrewd like this manager in the world. But I have a really hard time believing and that's what Jesus is saying. Number one, when does Jesus ever say, especially in the Gospels, that, that the people in the world have it right? That the children characterized by this age are those who have it right? But I think what confirms that that isn't the right interpretation, that there's something else going on, is verse 9. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. The wealth of unrighteousness can be taken one or two ways. It can just mean wealth in general, just money. Or it could mean wealth that has come from unrighteous acts, sourced in unrighteousness. And the last time the word unrighteousness was used was right beforehand in verse 8 to describe the manager. And when I think about the master, he is the one who makes friends by the wealth of this unrighteousness, right? By all this unrighteous actions, the master is the one who makes friends. He's saying, be like the master. But at the same time, 
it may also be a, a double entendre, a double meaning. Not only be like the master, but the manager as well made friends. But how does Jesus say to make friends in the gospel with money? He says, give to the poor. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Take care of the widow. Take the clothes off your back and give it to someone else. In other words, Jesus in this parable is saying, be recklessly generous. That as disciples, you are to be reckless with your generosity. You are to be fools in the, in the eyes of the world with your money. In other words, verse 8, look, the sons of this age are going to be wiser or, or shrewder than you with their own kind. But that's okay. You aren't supposed to be like them. Be like the master who to his own disadvantage was generous. Be like the father and the prodigal son who to his disadvantage, to his own shame, was generous. Be like your heavenly father who was generous in a way that is foolish to the world. Because the reality is that is the nature of our God. I think of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. That in response to the rebellion in the world, in response to wickedness, in response to evil, he was generous by giving his son. And this son, in response to all of those things, was generous by giving up of his own flesh to be whipped and stripped, and generous by giving himself over to torture on a cross, generous by giving himself over to death, generous by raising to life and welcoming the people who killed him into his kingdom. That is a generosity that is utter foolishness to the world. That is a generosity that is reckless. And why? He says in verse 9, because money is going to fail. When it fails, he says, then you will be received into the eternal dwelling. The money that you're concerned about is just paper, numbers on a screen, and it won't last. It will fail you. And he uses the same word that the manager uses in verse 4. Remember, he said, I want to be welcomed into people's homes. And he uses that same phrase and says, look, be generous in a reckless way, in a foolish way to the world, because when it fails, you will be welcomed into an eternal home. And that's what matters. All right, let me put some flesh here onto these ideas. What does this actually look like? When I was in seminary uh, during one of the summers, a friend of mine needed a place to stay, and so he was going to stay at my house over the summer. But the problem was there was no parking in the area, and the only, way, only place he could park was miles away, which obviously is not effective to have to walk miles to your car every time. And so the nearest spot was a, a location in a driveway right next to us at a home of people who definitely had a lot of different struggles. Um, and issues going on. And so we went to them and asked, look, can we, can we just park in, in your space? Now, at that time, they asked for some ridiculous amount of money. 
they totally took advantage of the situation because they knew we had no other option. And we're like, man, this just isn't fair. We could press them. We can try to negotiate this, all of these different options. And yet we said to ourselves, well, maybe the way of Jesus is, you know what, Luke? To your own disadvantage, you're going to pay more than you should, but maybe you can just be, be generous. Right? Even though that this isn't profitable to you, and in fact, this is basically unfair, an option for you to take and to think about this is to be generous like Jesus, generous like our God. That is... I think, a way that this plays out into our thinking. This is how we think as children of the light, not with the shrewdness of the world, but with the generosity of the master, the generosity of God. I began the sermon with the story of my friend who had an option. Her shrewd friends in the world, the realtors were saying, man, you can, you can take these lawyers, and go against this landlord if you'd like. That would be right. That would be just. You should do it. You can maybe even make money off of it. But instead, she could have the option to be generous to her landlord, help them out, even to her own disadvantage. That is the reckless generosity that Jesus is calling us to. Let's pray. Father, you have exemplified really hard truths, but we know them to be true about you. In the gospel, you have given us all things and its foolishness to this world, but it is the greatest news for us, and you have called us to live accordingly, to trust in your generosity, and then to go and do the same. So Lord, you pr we pray that you would help us Live out the gospel with our spending and with our money in this way. We pray this in your name. Amen.